Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to Episode 67 of Everyday Buddhism, Making Everyday Better. In this episode, I talk with Arthur Brooks, the author of 12 books, including the national bestseller, Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt, and the author of the book, From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. This new book was just released this week. You may have already heard or seen him this week on podcasts and TV. He has been making the rounds talking about this new book. He is a profoundly engaging and inspiring speaker, and I'm honored that he agreed to a conversation with me about both books. Arthur is also a columnist for The Atlantic host of the podcast, How to Build a Happy Life with Arthur Brooks, and subject of the 2019 documentary film, The Pursuit, which Variety named as one of the best documentaries on Netflix in August of 2019. He gives more than 100 speeches per year around the U.S., Europe, and Asia. He is also the William Henry Bloomberg Professor of the Practice of Public Leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School and Professor of Management Practice at the Harvard Business School. But before joining Harvard as a faculty member in 2019, he served for 10 years as president of the Washington, D.C.-based American Enterprise Institute, AEI, one of the world's leading think tanks. Brooks, though, began his career as a classical French hornist, leaving college at 19. He eventually returned to school, earning a Bachelor of Administration through distance learning at Thomas Edison State College, then an MA in economics from Florida Atlantic University while still touring as a French horn player. He left music at 31, earning a Master of Philosophy and Ph.D. in Public Policy Analysis from the Rand Graduate School. Brooks then spent 10 years as a university professor, becoming a full professor at Syracuse University's Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs. So with that uh, esteemed resume, um, he still is a profoundly down-to-earth speaker, and I think you will be engaged. I hope you'll listen and continue to listen to my conversation with Arthur, which was one of the most fascinating, stimulating, and inspiring podcast conversations I've had. I think you'll agree. The conversation starts now. Arthur, welcome to the show. I shared your bio in the intro, but I'd love you for t- 
to like share a brief intro about your evolution or professional personal journey from professional horn player to social scientist, public speaker, thinker, author. Um, I think your evolving career really um, frames the subject matters we're going to be talking about today. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you for your wonderful show, helping so many people put their life in context. And this is really the the question that you're asking me right now, what's the context of my life? Why, why do, <laughs> how have I wound up doing these unusual things? And the truth is I've kind of reinvented my own career and my own life every 10 years and not exactly on purpose. I feel like a cork bobbing along in and down in the river of life. And every time the cork really pops out of the water, it's doing, it's in some weird position in some strange new place. And, and so it looks like there's some centrally planned purpose to it. But the truth is, I've been dedicated to just trying to create value with my ideas and with my life to serve other people as much as I possibly can. And so the way that it starts is, is in the classical music business, which is what I was doing when I was four and five years old. I was playing violin and then piano and then French horn by the time I was eight. And, and I come from an artist, a family of artists and intellectuals. My father was a college professor, a mathematics professor. My mother was a pretty prominent painter in the Pacific Northwest. I grew up in Seattle. And when I showed early aptitude for classical music, they were arts lovers and they jumped right on that in a big way. So I was playing every competition I could find. I was playing in every ensemble. Um, I, I wanted nothing more than to perform the greatest pieces of music that had ever been written. So I left school. I quit college after one year or, you know, dropped out, kicked out, splitting hairs at this point. And, and I, I played chamber music, although I had been in all 50 states by the time I was 20. And, and, and I wound up in Barcelona, the Barcelona Symphony in my mid-20s, where I went chasing a girl. Um, not It wasn't about my career at all. It was about love. Uh, she didn't speak a word of English. I didn't speak a word of Spanish. But um, and, and the music career didn't work out, but we just celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary, and we have three adult children. So uh, it's uh, it, the, the, the most important thing worked out, which was love. And in my late 20s, as a professional classical musician, still having not gone to college, my parents called it my gap decade. I... Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I started reflecting on how I thought I could create the most value with my life. I come from a, a traditionally religious but deeply ethical family of people that, that were dedicated to serving mankind, dedicating to, you know, the expanding love that can, I mean, the purpose of life is love. And the, we believe that the expression of love for God, that, that love for God is expressed uniquely in the way that we can love other people. And that expression comes through service to others, the, the, the solace that we can give to others in a complicated world. And, and at the time, I was listening to my favorite composer a lot, Johann Sebastian Bach, maybe the greatest composer in, in the Western tradition, at least. And he was asked near the end of his life why he wrote music. Why do you write music? A very Buddhist question, by the way. Not what do you do for a living? Not how do you pay your rent? Why do you do what you do? And, and right. he answered... The, the biographer is lost to posterity, but his answer certainly is not. He said, the aim and final end of all music is nothing less than the refreshment of the soul and the glorification of God. And I said to myself, I want to answer that question about my life in the same way. But I couldn't. Wendy, I couldn't. I was playing in the orchestra hall every night and I was playing this beautiful music, but I wasn't playing it. I wasn't actually refreshing too many souls. I certainly didn't feel like I was glorifying God. And so I looked for something instead in the realm of ideas and intellect. And I went back to school. I, I Believe it or not, Wendy, this is crazy. I became an economist so I could answer Bach's question like Bach. 
And I, I dedicated myself to human behavior and the study of human happiness so that I could answer Bach's question like Bach. And, and I tell you, I, I became an academic for 10 years, and then I ran a big think tank in Washington, D.C. as the CEO for 10 years. And now I'm, and now I'm writing, speaking, and teaching up at Harvard, but in, in the national media, what a privilege it is because I'm still trying to, I'm still trying to refresh the human soul and, and glorify God in the way that I can. That's an excellent answer. And, you know, it's like I, I, I used to be a career coach and uh, in my, well, one and a half um, um, cycles or whatever. <laughs> um, and uh, I used to say to people, you know, you know, the, the job of a career coach or, and or a resume writer is to make it look like there's been a singular purpose all along, even though your life was always just a bunch of things happening to you. Right. Um, yeah. So that, that, that I loved how you framed that, but I, I do think you, you emphasize the most important thing. And that is that at the core of you, there was always that uh, inspiration or motivation, intention, if you will, as we say in Buddhism, yeah. intention. Yeah, I try to be not attached. I try to live by intention without attachment and all, all in the service of others. And the whole point is that you have to, all the accomplishments and all the worldly things that you enjoy, you must hold them lightly because they will be taken away. They, right. they will go. And, and the idea of being unattached, but highly intent on a particular moral purpose, such as to serve others. I mean, I, ultimately, you know, I've worked over the past years, not as, not as intensively as you, of course, but with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and with many of many of my Buddhist friends. And the, my understanding of what it means to try to become a bodhisattva is not about mastering technique so that you can get into the deepest possible, you know, sense of bliss, personal bliss to escape your problems in a, in a, in a meditative state, but rather to to understand that your ultimate intention can take many, many expressions. And in point of fact, the, the Bodhisattva who chooses not to chooses not to forego samsara, chooses not to refuse to come back because she or he is dedicated to serving other mankind. Well, you can have a simulacrum for the Bodhisattva's life over the course of many careers by simply bobbing along in whatever life circumstances are thrown at you, but always having the intent without attachment of loving God, of refreshing the souls, of trying to have boundless goodness that emanates from you. That's awesome. I love it. And this is exactly, I, it's like I was attracted to, I, I shared the story with you um, before we were recording was how I stumbled onto you. I heard you on a podcast. I, at, to the, at this point, I don't remember where it was, but it was the, um, about your book, um, Love Your Enemies and how decent people can save America from the culture of contempt. And it was that subtitle that captivated me because, you know, I, uh, I, I, after, as soon as I heard, was done with the podcast, I ordered your book immediately because you can do that these days. Everything can be done in one second. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, and, and, um, cause I was right in the middle of, uh, uh, just feeling sort of overwhelmed by the, you know, the cont contempt in our mm. culture. And, um, so I sort of reattached myself to, to Bodhisattva practices, you know, meta, loving kindness, that sort of thing. Um, Tonglen, Lojong and, and that, that, and I also started, um, practicing the 37 practices of Bodhisattvas with my Sangha. So I was wrapped up in the middle of all this and your book sort of was screaming that to me. And, um, uh, so, 
I, 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 that, that was the attraction. So, you know, I know I'm not saying anything new about commenting on how challenging it's been all these years, last few years in thousands of individual ways that it's been challenging for all of us. And I know I wasn't alone in struggling with the deep angst over the divisiveness of our time, but you know, everything seems so toxic. And even if you have that, like you say, intent, intent to serve, if, if you in fact are being dragged down by the poison around you, you know, I mean, no matter what kind of bodhisattva intent you have, hmm. you know, it's very hard to keep that um, sometimes when it, 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 all around you, uh, you feel the hatred. So I read your book because it seemed a rare and unique voice and the clamor of all these angry voices, <laughs> you know? And so then I reached out to, to ask you to be a guest as soon as I finished the book. So, um, and then I found, found out about your other book that's just released, um, from right. strength, the strength. So in our conversation today, we'll try to cover both, um, to start, I'd like to talk to you about love your enemies, um, right. to help make the best use of our time, but at the risk of it being too heavy of a lift, uh, can you <laughs> start by answering the question implied in that subtitle that captured my interest? How do we as decent people save America from the culture of contempt? Because, you know, unfortunately, it doesn't seem like your book solved all the problems. <laughs> you know, it's oh, interesting. Yeah. I've, I've had I've had so many friends um, and even family members who are missionaries and Christian missionaries. And the interesting thing about missionaries is they face huge headwinds. I mean, you know, the words that nobody's ever, ever, ever uttered is, oh, great news. There's missionaries on the porch. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's like... Nobody is happy about that, but yet they're filled with joy. And the reason that they're filled with joy is because they believe that not necessarily over the course of their lives, even the course of several generations, but they are some small part of bringing light where there's darkness. And, and this is the spirit of the missionary that we have to have. And indeed, love your enemies, which all of your listeners who are familiar with the Christian Bible will recognize as from the gospel of St. Matthew, the fifth chapter, the 44th verse is the most transgressive teaching in human history. The idea of, you know, the entire society telling you day after day after day to hate your enemies, to persecute those who hurt, who hurt you, that hate requires that you hate in kind. And indeed, there's evolutionary reasons why people would be pushed toward that. But, but Mother Nature is a cruel, cruel uh, overlord. Um, and, and, you know, if we, if we exist, I mean, every Buddhist understands that if we exist only according to our animal instincts. This is the absolute road to perdition that... We must fight against many of these instincts so that we can rise above them. And this is a classic case, the teaching of Jesus, the transgressive teaching of loving our enemies, even though our, to our very core, we think that we should hate them. This is the war with the, the, the worst our, of our own nature that can deliver us. This is, I mean, every Buddhist knows this better than almost anybody else. If you fight against the hate in your soul, the first one that will be cured is you. You and and in so and only in so doing can you can you that that's how you defeat the culture of contempt is by is by fighting the contempt inside yourself. The war that you have to wage starts with a war against yourself, and it's such a beautiful and joyful war to fight. 
Yeah, you know, in the in the thirty seven practices that that uh, uh, that book that I referenced, it's a little booklet. Um, it's by Togme Zampo, and you may not have heard it, but one of the verses is: No matter how hard you fight the enemies on out in the outside, um, if you don't fight the enemy on the inside, they'll just keep on coming. So that's oh, yeah. essentially what you just said. Exactly and, right. Uh, exactly right. Exactly right. And this is a principle of Christianity. It's an ancient principle of Judaism. It's something we find in Buddhism. It's something we find in absolutely in Hinduism and, and, in, and, and in Islam as well, that we have to, we cannot trust ourselves. You know, the old 60s maxim, if it feels good, do it, is exactly wrong. It's, it's you know, as, it's for useful idiots, actually. <laughs> and, and it feels good, like you're scratching an itch, you get a little spritz of dopamine if you, if you hate your enemies. But you've just defeated yourself, is the bottom line. And so the culture of contempt is one in which hate inspires hate. And, and, and in so doing it, we really bring the whole world down. Contempt is a complex human emotion saying that I think that you're worthless. What you've said is worthless. You are worthless. It's much, much deeper and more destructive than, than even anger because it mixes disgust with anger. It's an ice cold emotion. Uh, it's a way to make a permanent enemy. And when we indulge our animal tendency for anger and then with disgust and even for hatred for another person in the form of contempt, we have absolutely eviscerated our ability even to share our values. And I think this is the main point, Wendy. You know, I hear, you know, in the culture wars today and the political ideological struggles that we see today, everybody has values and, and, and legitimate values because people deserve to be able to have their values, but they use them as a weapon. It's the most yeah. amazing to, to basically, it's like showing up at somebody's door with a bouquet of flowers and hitting them in the face with them. <laughs> and, 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 well, and no wonder we're miserable. No wonder we're polarized under the circumstances. And, the, and the, the cure to that is not to get people to agree with you. The cure to that is to love the people with whom you disagree. And the way to do that is by extinguishing the fire inside your own soul. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I love this line from that, your book, Love Your Enemies. Um, it, it is so bodhisattva. It starts with a commitment to acting the way you want to be, not the way you feel at any given moment. And that's that, that, that impulse that we try to practice, I think, both in Christianity, if you're following the teachings of Christ, as well as Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist practice is to um, curb reactivity because reactivity comes from the baser instincts. Um, so another thing that from your book, and I know you just spoke about what I just said, so I, we won't go farther. I want to move along. But another concept from the book that reminded me of Bodhisattva teachings is how in being nice, and you, you sort of hinted at this before, but I think this is, this is like... Um, the, the sophistication of this practice and something that I think people find very hard to do um, in being nice. We don't have to avoid disagreements. Like uh, you said, we, you know, we can have different points of view and, and um, the, the, but we don't have we don't have to avoid disagreements. We don't have to be a doormat to others. I can't tell you how many people come to me when, after Buddhist teachings and they say, well, then, you know, aren't you just being a doormat? You know, it's like, no, you're, you're not. And you wrote, quote, disagreeing better, not less, which I love this better, not less, is what we need to lessen contempt in America and bring the country back together. So that. I think that says it all, but that's also very complex. And, and how do you explain how one 
does better in disagreement? (laughs) (laughs) The first thing to remember is that disagreement is incredibly beneficial and important. And the reason is because none of us has a unique and absolute lock on truth. We're not endowed with those truth capabilities. I mean, a, a bodhisattva is is much more aware and has a much clearer understanding of truth than somebody who is at no level of spiritual sophistication, of course. And we're trying to get more truth. We're trying to have a truer signal, as it were. But none of us on this earth, none of us as a as a, a mere mortal, you know, on as we say in, in my religion, on this side of heaven, has an absolute beat on truth. And as such, we need people who disagree with us so that we can get more truth. It's interesting, you know, all healthy relationships have tons of disagreement. I've been married for a long time, as I mentioned before, and there are areas in which my wife and I are never going to agree. Right. We're, we're not going to agree. And yet we love each other. We're going to be together until one of us dies. We just, that's just the way it's going to be. And, and so that's a productive kind of even competition of ideas. Now, most people listening to us, they, they, they're kind of repelled by the idea of competition, but love it at the same time. And so far as, you know, you don't want the Yankees and the Red Sox to decide on the score before the game. You know, you don't want uh, to, you, you want more than one politician running for office. That's competition. You want more than one choice when you go to the supermarket. That's competition. And the competition of ideas is arguably the secret sauce in the benefits of a free society in which, you know, people are saying different things and you can use your, you can use your, your cognizance, your, your sentient ability to actually make judgment, prudential judgments about the things that you hear and that you can actually expose your own thinking to the competition that can make you better under the circumstances. So, you know, so I was speaking to Congress, to members of Congress, um, the Republicans in Congress about five years ago, all assembled in the House and Senate. And I said, give me a show of hands. How many of you wish we lived in a one-party state? And no hands went up, of course. And nobody wants to live in a one-party state, at least in the United States, we don't, and most other free countries. And I said, okay, you just told, and how many of you are grateful to live in a multi-party democracy? Every hand goes up. And I say, you just told me that you're grateful for the Democrats. It's axiomatic. If you're grateful to live in a multi-party democracy, that means you're grateful for the other party. That's not your party. So start acting like it. And we all need to start acting like that. Yeah, well, I don't think we should probably wade too much into the political angst at this point in time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if we can do it like Buddhists, it would be okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So, you know, you do conclude the book, Love Your Enemies, with five rules to remember if we believe we can help renew our nation and, uh, as you say, subvert the culture of contempt. Um, Would you like to speak a bit about those and about anything that you and, and I just hinted at that you would change now after writing that book. I think the book was published in 2019. You probably wrote it much before that, knowing how books. Well, in the two years before that, but you know, and whenever I write a book, I'm writing a book about what I'm, what I think is going to be in the zeitgeist for the next 10 years or so. Again, I'm a missionary. Mm-hmm. So I'm not pretending that I'm going to write a book and it's going to change society and all will be well. Oh, I, I mean, that's I right. Yeah. And so, and, and again, and, it's funny because um, Steve Dubner, who does the Freakonomics podcast, you know, he, he, we, we, I went on his show and he said, well, you know, you wrote Love Your Enemies in 2019 and here we are. So you failed, right? <laughs> I said, well, yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. I failed. But, but when you have to do your part, you have to get your oar in the water is the bottom line. You have to say what's true. You have to, re- you have to refuse personally to lie and say the truths with love for other people. And, and then with the, hope and faith 
that that you're going to change somebody else's viewpoint, that you're going to bring somebody else along. You're going to show a little bit of goodness to somebody else. And sooner or later, that kind of thing can become a movement. At least that's the idea. That is the idea. But then <laughs> but looking at it from where you are now, where I would say, and yeah. uh, and I think you would agree that things have only gotten worse from three, four years ago. Um, and, and, uh, you know, for, for various reasons, but, um, is there anything of those five rules you would change now that our country has seemingly gotten angrier and angrier? And I might add a little crazier in some way. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I mean, it's a, I'm not sure I would change any of these things, but I think that my, my ambition, or at least the time horizon that I had for trying to have a lot of good is really had to expand. Now, yeah, it's gotten worse. It's gotten worse. But I'm actually, Wendy, I'm actually more hopeful than I've been in the past. And the reason is because in the last couple of years, there's an exhaustion. And there's, you know, people, my friends of mine who studied foreign policy and, and the science of war tell me that one of the biggest bellwethers for peace is, is when it's the fighting is most bitter, but there's a lot of exhaustion and people are starting to not understand or recognize what the stakes are anymore. You know, people start to say, what are we fighting about? What, what I, I don't remember. I don't. Re- and and this is actually what I hear in America today, and and many other Western countries, where people don't. Ninety look. Ninety three percent of Americans say they hate how divided we become as a country, and they're starting to recognize that the, the populist right and the cultural left in this country are manipulating us through the media, that they're they're trying to they're they're trying to fire us up. It's hate incorporated from politicians and social media figures and the traditional media and the new media that are making a lot of money and getting a lot of supporters and a lot of votes and a lot of followers by help by having people on the right and the left in America, you know, with live this big lie that the biggest threat to our country and way of life is the person next door who doesn't vote like you. I mean, that's just insanity that people have been, have been convinced by this big lie and they're starting to recognize that it's a lie. And so what I'm dedicating myself now to with love your enemies, and it was different than when I wrote that book, is I'm trying to install the software of Love Your Enemies on on politicians on both sides of the aisle to say, there is a new way. You can actually lead the parade down the street in a different direction because there's a hunger for this. It's just a hunger that's not being met by by the major media, by these cable news networks and these big newspapers that have had revolutions in their editorial boards to make them more radical day after day and week after week and month after month, we can do better. And somebody's going to, should be able to profit from this hunger and then align the incentives and do what we can. Yeah, that's an, and you, you touched on that with the new media, you point, and in your book, you point to the internet, social media, and it's, you know, anonymity as a contributing factor uh, to our culture of contempt, which I totally agree with. And even disregarding the algorithms of divisiveness applied by, you know, technology's corporate overlords, like you said, they're making a lot of money, um, making us think a certain way, uh, just by pure mass exposure or whatever. Um, I think that the key here is, is is the sense that, it's 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 uh profiting on the inherent human urge to other we right. we we tend to want to other or objectify and this is this is a buddhist com, uh, concept in in it from the non-dual perspective is um you know we have to we're trying to break those subject object delusions which are just illusory 
It's illusory right. that there's a subject and an object. And so tur this othering, turning people, like you said, turning people we don't agree with into things, right? To, to actual objects. That's what objectification is. And strengthening that dualistic filter we, we as humans tend to see the world through. Um, that, agree completely. That, completely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, it's social media and like you, it, it's, it's, it's traditional media as much as it exists anymore, but it's also social media as well. Um, social and, media and, actually works in the brain in, in a much different way than traditional media. And as such, it can play to our worst or best instincts. The problem is that it's much more profitable to fire us up in hatred toward, as you say, other, and that's a, we social scientists, we use the, the the concepts of othering and belonging, but it really does come down to the idea that that we are, it's interesting, you know, I, I write in my new book, which we'll talk about presently, I know the, the idea of the Aspen Grove, where, which is the perfect metaphor for the illusion that Wendy and Arthur are not the same. I mean, right. as I say, I see Wendy and I'm looking at you right now because we're talking on Zoom, even though this is going to be audio for the audience. And, um, and I see a different person, but in point of fact, we're like an aspen grove, which is actually one plant. You know, right. the largest living organism in the history of the world is an aspen grove currently alive in Utah called Pando, which is 106 acres. Millions, millions of, of, of kilograms of, of, of wood in one organism. And each apparently separate tree is simply a different shoot from the same root system incredibly important for us to remember this. I mean, this is at the, at the, at the, really at the root of all of our, the metaphors that we often, and, and many of your listeners who are so familiar with, you know, this famous Zen Buddhist meta, the question, the, you know, this almost mythical now uh, uh, paradox of, you know, trying to sort out what is the sound of one hand clapping. I mean, that's just, what that is, is the sound of one hand clapping is an illusion, just exactly like the illusion of the separateness of different people. So if you want to stop treating people with contempt, if you want to stop hating your enemies, remember that your enemy is the person staring out at you in a mirror. That, that, and, and, and good luck with that. You know, good luck with that. Get, good luck with actually that, that you know, terminating in some, in some place that's in any way productive, in, in any way positive, that can actually lead to anywhere good. We're, we're just the same. Yeah, Master Shanti Deva, who wrote The Way of the Bodhisattva, uses the metaphor of that, you know, if 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 my right hand was injured, um, would my left hand not reach out to comfort it? And that <laughs> and, and we our interdependence is the same way. We are we are nothing but the you are nothing but since you are on my left now in my zoom screen, you are nothing but my <laughs> left hand of my yeah. both hands. So I think this objectification concept is a good transition to your new book because right. you talk about objectification in strength to strength. And um, well, what's the subtitle from strength to strength? Uh, the second it's half finding, life. finding success, happiness, and deep purpose in the second the half, half of life of life. Okay. Thank you. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's all right. Because sometimes I have to remember, I have to look on Amazon myself and know this, the subtitle is so long. Subtitles <laughs> are like paragraphs now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because you know, you got to get the key words in there and everything. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah exactly. I, actually, um, I wrote my book in 2019 and I still screw up my subtitle. So there you go. Um, can you, <laughs> can can you say a little more about that and and lead us into strength to strength with how you frame objectification and strength to strength? Because I thought that was so fascinating. And I think it's a concept that 
you know, everybody talks about, you know, making the better, the second half of your life. Okay. You know, just smile and get on with it, even though your body's falling apart, but you, the positioning of the objectification concept is, is a completely different way to approach it. I think. Mm. Uh, yeah. The book... let, I'll let you go on that. Okay? <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you, Wendy. It's a, the new book from strength to strength is about, you know, think of it as a happiness science book for the rest of us. You know, happiness is always the happiness literature is always written about how you can design your life when you're young, what you can do with your work, what you can do as you grow older, how you form relationships. Well, you know, look, Wendy and Arthur are in the second half of their life. I mean, presumably, who knows what medical science has in store? And maybe 100 years from now, we'll be doing another ver- we'll be doing another edition of, of, of your podcast or mine. But, you know, the truth is that we recognize that we're in a different period of life than we were 40 years ago in our careers, in our lives, et cetera. And by the way, thank God. I wouldn't go back to, oh my goodness, you know, it's like starting out again for, for Pete's sake, but people panic and they, they suffer a lot and especially successful strivers of which there are many among your listeners who have worked hard, have been very successful. And, and one of the reasons that they've looked at Buddhism is because life isn't living up to the expectations. It's not living up to its promises. They're realizing they've been sold a bill of goods, that if you do this, you get on the treadmill and you run and run and run and run. Mysteriously, you'll wind up in a, in a location that's full of, you know, happiness and, and honey and sweetness and, 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 and permanent satisfaction. And of course, it's not true. It isn't true. So how do you solve that when you built up a whole bunch of patterns in life? And what this book is about is it talks about the unique strengths that people have a- after about age 50, that look like weaknesses, but in point of fact, are tremendous sources of strength to create value and success in the world and to create happiness in, the, in, in your own life and life of other people. And then 10 big practices where we can make the transition into the second half of our life. One of them, as you suggest, is to think about the biggest mistake. One of the things that's really held us back that we need to clear out. This starts with the fact that we are addicts. Every successful person, every ambitious person is just a junkie. And what are we a junkie for? Maybe not, you know, alcohol, although alcohol abuse is more prevalent among high earners than low earners in America today, mm. because it's an anesthetic. It turns off the machine. And for people who have a hard time turning off the cognitive machine, it's a very efficacious way to do so. But it's alcoholism is more prevalent among high earners than lower earners. But the key thing is to recognize that the, the big addiction that we have is an addiction to success. Now this manifests itself in workaholism and, and, it, and it stems from an a tendency to see ourselves as objects, as excellent, hardworking objects. And when you can't humanize yourself, good luck humanizing anybody else. You know, look, as they say, Buddhism starts at home. (laughs) And so, you know, it's like, you're going to try to be a a good, you know, big hearted, you know, compassionate Buddhist toward everybody else, but not to you. Good luck with that. You have to start by seeing yourself as a as a real human being, not as an object, not as homo economicus. On the contrary, you need to understand that, you know, workaholism is just a really bad tyrannical addiction that you're, you're being hooked on success, which is to say worldly rewards and adulation and congratulations of people outside of you. That's a tyranny that's going to just enchain you and that you need to break free of these ideas, break free of success addiction, workaholism, self-objectification. And, and only when you do so, can you can you actually see the bliss that can come in the second half of life? 
that and you know that's that's the thing that I thought was brilliant. I hope you don't mind me calling you brilliant, but that's the thing. That <laughs> no, it's the book, not me. It's the book. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's the thing I thought was now you're objectifying. Uh, that was that's the thing I thought was brilliant about the way you presented that because that's really a holy. Maybe it's because from a, my Buddhist perspective that that's a, a better way of looking at things when you're facing aging. You know what I mean? It's not. It's not that the, that things are ending; that they're they're changing, and life is nothing but change. Um, and uh, talking about your book, you you know, you have the theory of uh, the two curves, um, right. and the two curves are fluid intelligence, which is the intelligence of of the young bucks, right? And yeah. the, and uh, mm. you know, the ones who are are uh, uh, creating uh, the algorithms that their corporate overlords tell them to. And then there's the crystallized intelligence, which I like that crystallized. Um, and in your presentation, you emphasize that we can move gracefully from strength to strength, which uh, in the second half of life is by accepting and willingly stepping on to that second curve as the right. first curve declines, as it goes down, then it's, you know, it's, it's kind of easy to step into the, to the rising second curve, um, jumping from the decline of fluid intelligence to crystallized intelligence. I'm just going to add a little bit of my background right here, just because I, I have a question to ask. So bear with this, what sounds like a selfish indulgence because, but I have a question. Uh, I had an early experience with curve jumping. I was forced to leave a success, successful career in broadcasting in my mid to late thirties due to a chronic mm. autoimmune illness, systemic lupus. And at that time, mm. see, I prematurely faced that second curve. I'm, I, I felt completely washed up. I know how the guy on the plane felt. You can explain that if you want later. Um, but, uh, I, I just, I, I, you know, I, I, I was always going to be in broadcasting. It never occurred to me I would do otherwise. And um, so I was facing that second curve or maybe it was curve 1.5. I don't know. Um, in, in any case, it was a life shattering event for me um, that forced me to meditate. And you talk about that, that spiritual aspect of it, to meditate and focus on the inside rather than the outside uh, for the answers to keep living a predict productive life. And it, it initiated the deeper spiritual study that led to my end up being a Buddhist sensei and lay minister. <laughs> But then again, at age 65, after doing career coaching, because I had to make a living somehow during that time. So I did huh. career coaching from my home. And then again, at age 65, because I had had all this Buddhism to give, I did. I needed to do something with it. So I moved into my third or official second curve, leaving the career coaching industry to become a full time you know, actually to enter my full-time ministry as a podcaster mm -hmm. and sangha leader um, and author. So I'm um, sorry for that foray. No, it's great. That personal. It's an incredible career, by the way. It's an incredible set of set of changes. And, and it follows the crystallized and, and, and fluid intelligence curves to a T. Early on, you were following the rules of a, an ambitious career. And in so, in, in so doing, you were being as hardworking, as creative and innovative as you could possibly be under those strictures. And then later on, you made the change to instructor. I talk about in the, in the book, young people have an incredible, you know, heart, you know, raw horsepower capacity to innovate and work hard single-mindedly toward tasks that are usually set out by other people. 
But after a certain point, the, not just the energy, but the attention and focus to that becomes attenuated, becomes harder and harder to do it. And you were right on schedule, the lupus notwithstanding in your thirties and forties, that's in wholesale decline. And people can't figure out why they can't solve problems the way that they were able to in the past. Like these lawyers, the best lawyers in the business find that they're, 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 they're not as good as they used to be. They're not as sharp as they used to be. And young people are, and this isn't that like 45 years old. And they feel like, what, what the heck is wrong with me? Am I having dementia or something? <laughs> and, and what's happening is that there's that, that is a very, very normal thing. I mean, there's a, a lot of, and you can read about the science and as you have in the book about the science of how the brain structurally changes, but there's this other success curve behind it that most people don't know about, which is the crystallized intelligence curve, which is wisdom, the ability to take knowledge that's been, that originates with others and, and tie it together with other kinds of learning to create a, a, a really interesting story. And so what you find is that older people are better teachers, older people are better managers, older people are better at creating teams, other people are better, older people are better at telling stories. And so, sure, you should be this like super ambitious person in broadcasting. And and now at age 65 or 68, you should be doing a podcast called Everyday Buddhism. And you should be writing about that because you become a sensei. Everybody should think of themselves as having the capacity to go from warrior to sensei, to go from 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 the you know the, to, to become a sage, and that is to to share the knowledge that will enrich other people in a way. It's it's amazing to me, you know, that I can explain things with a clarity now that I could I would completely incapable of doing thirty years ago. I can't even read the mathematics in the in the in the academic journal articles I was writing in my mid thirties. But today I can, I can combine the ideas of many other sophisticated academic authors and write about it for an audience in the Atlantic every Thursday morning or in the new book, Strength to Strength, that I wouldn't have been able to do before because my, my skills had changed. The key thing is for people to recognize that the second curve exists and it's worth jumping from the first one. But they're so terrified of leaving that first career. But so the, the most useful concept for Buddhists is a Tibetan term that you're familiar with. Some of your listeners are who have studied in the Tibetan tradition, which is bardo. You know, bardo is, 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 is to make the jump. Now, usually it's thought of in the concept of earthly death so that the subtle wind will take you to the next life. Right. The subtle wind. I can't remember the word in Tibetan for the subtle wind. Poa, poa. Yeah. The poa is the practice, but I forget the subtle yeah. wind. Yeah. Yeah. The subtle, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not because it's not, it's it, anyway, the, the whole point is that to, to avail yourself of the subtle wind that will deliver you to the next wife, life, bardo is important. You actually have to make a, a conscious decision to jump. And the right. same thing is true in our earthly lives right now. You need to be able to say, look, I did that. It was good. It's normal for things to decline. And there's something even better behind it, but I'm not going to get it unless I'm, I'm willing to jump. And that's true. And it's like there's a, a Zen, uh, a Zen parable about you, you, uh, you go up to the top of the highest mountain to the top of the highest pinnacle. And you take when you're about ready to take your last step, you realize there's no more mountain left, but you still take that last step. Yeah, 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 that's right. And it, it takes just incredible amount of courage, um, courage to, to decline and die. 
which is really, really hard for people. And so there's this, I always remember this is, I mean, what, one of the ways to do this, by the way, and one of the things that I recommend in the book is I, I, I even wrote a, a version of the Maranasati meditation. Wow. So in, right. in the Theravada tradition, of course, Maranasati is the death meditation, the yeah, nine right. stages of, of decay and death of the corpse. And you would, you would meditate on the Maranasati because it, it becomes familiar. When death becomes familiar, it's no longer scary and you're set free. But the same thing is true. So I wrote a um, Maranasati meditation for professional decline I so that, that it becomes, yeah, that. yeah, I yeah. Love and that. just, it, it becomes, it makes you courageous. It makes you, it makes you tough. And so, and, and I, there's a parable that I tell, or who knows if it's a true story or not about in, in the 11th century in Japan, where there's a the samurai in the time of the samurai and there's a, a, a an abbot in a Zen Buddhist monastery. And, you know, the samurai are riding across the countryside, you know, burning down farmhouses and, and just and murdering the peasants. And, and they come riding up to this, to this uh, monastery and all the, all the monks just go running off every direction. And, but the abbot, <clears throat> he's sitting quietly, he's sitting quietly in the lotus position and the head samurai comes in and he sees the abbot in complete equanimity. And, and he says to him, he snarls at him. He says, what's wrong with you? Don't you see that I'm a man who could run you through without batting an eye? And the abbot says, don't you see that I'm the kind of man who could be run through without batting an eye? <laughs> I love it. You know, <laughs> I did laugh out loud when I read that part and I hadn't heard that story. I heard something similar um, about a Bodhisattva, about the Buddha. Um, but yeah, that, that's a wonderful story. And, and, you know, I, because I sort of faced that, during my uh, during a chronic illness, I think other people who have like um, uh, abrupt changes in their life mid maybe in their mid twenties, right? That yeah. they have to rethink their life um, could could use this kind of thought too. I don't think it has to always be like the transition to the wise. You can you can you can. You know, obviously we do get wiser as we get older. Some of us, maybe, I don't know, um, but we, <laughs> we're um, trying, right? <laughs> we're trying. Uh, but, but the thing about it is, is that if you go inside, you know, if you, and you emphasize this about spiritual practice and, and, and if you go inside when, when, when out, when what you're looking at out there is scaring the bejesus out of you, right? If you yeah. go inside, you will find the wisdom because I think it, it lives there, whether you're 65 or 28, right? Um, yeah. So I do think it does apply. And I don't know if you interviewed anybody like that had that situation, but I do. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, for sure. For sure. You know, the truth is, it's interesting that many of the people who have the greatest wisdom, particularly early in life have suffered a lot. There are people who've been at war, people who've lost loved ones, people who've survived cancer. I mean, these are the people who, right. you know, from chronic illness to personal tragedy. And, and it's a lot of the people who are most vulnerable and most unable to make changes are the people who have not suffered enough. This is one of the great paradoxes in life that every Buddhist listening will understand, listening to will understand, but so hard to put into practice in our lives. You know, we, whereas in the sixties, as I, you know, I cast aspersions about our, you know, brothers and sisters who lived through the sixties who said, you know, if it feels good, do it. And that's bad advice, but equally bad advice is sort of the millennial anthem of, if it feels bad, get rid of it or treat it. You know, the truth is we need to suffer. We must suffer. We will not learn the purpose and meaning of our lives without trauma and suffering and challenge and pain. And, and, and when we try to, I mean, and, and again, you don't need to 
seek suffering out, it will find you, trust me. (laughs) But the whole idea of trying to obviate it by trying to treat it always by not sitting with the pain, there's something so un-Buddhist about all about dedicating your life to getting rid of suffering, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I've always said that too. And you know, that's the thing. The, the, the Buddhist talks about the suffering, but the thing about it is, is that suffering is, is the nature of life. It's the, that's the first noble truth. That's the thing. <laughs> it's the second noble truth that everybody keeps forgetting about. It's yeah. like you said, it's the pushing away is the millennial gesture, right? Right. <laughs> right, right. No, the whole idea of, of dukkha, dukkha right. in Sanskrit, of of uh, which actually doesn't mean suffering, it means dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction, right? right. Yeah, and the whole idea of trying to to avoid dukkha by by sitting on this hedonic treadmill and pushing away bad feelings is the fast course to ultimate misery. Is to not understanding this 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 cosmic source of meaning and purpose in our lives, which only comes from being fully alive and exposing ourselves to these vicissitudes that are the characteristic of a life fully lived. Yeah. And you know, that's what I've noticed the most during this pandemic is, is the number of people who, who just all, you know, I got it at the beginning, but I'm not getting it so much now. It keeps keep crying about they want it to be back to normal you know right. I, I want everything it sounds as so if bad. normal were so great i mean they hated normal back in the days don't remember how much they hated normal <laughs> yeah it just sounds so where 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 it's like not understanding the nature of life you know these these things are going to happen and and you yeah. know um they they happened to all of our the generations before we just haven't been we just haven't experienced it at this level before. And that's why I wonder, one of the things I kept thinking about when I was reading your book, Strength to Strength, is after this COVID-19 pandemic ends, or if it does, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it- It's never going to end. It's just going gonna, gonna to live. We're going to learn to live with it like everything else in life, right? That's what I mean. After it, 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 it changes form and we accept it or whatever- do you think people will be more practiced, whether they're Buddhist, whether they're Catholic, whether they're whatever? Do you think they will be more practiced about um, understanding of the second noble truth, accepting things as they are, uh, unchanging, you know, um, changing, impermanent, rather than clinging to what they want them to be? Do you think this is like a global lesson. Maybe this is too out there, but you know, mm. that's the thing that I kept thinking about. Yeah, I no, I know. I do too. I do too. And, and traditionally what, what pain does is it drives you to one side or the other. Pain, it, 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 pain is not about anything more or less in retrospect than, than what you do with it. That's the real punchline to the pain joke is, and, and what did you do with it? And a lot of people, they don't learn from pain, except that they want to avoid it now and everywhere in the future. So it's kind of like, you know, you get a shelter dog and a siren goes down the street and the dog freaks out, you know, that there was some sort of trauma in the back and it turns into this sublimated trauma and becomes really problematic for people for the rest of their lives. And other people grow from pain. Now, fortunately, most people have post-traumatic growth. About 90% of cases of real trauma result in post-traumatic growth, which is net net benefit to people. This is the story that in, in, in sort of the modern over-psychologized world, we don't talk about very much. We talk about post-traumatic stress, which is a lot more, it was a lot rarer than post-traumatic growth. And so this is the key. It, it's going to be, and, and the good news is that 
a lot of this is in our hands. If you can decide, I am going to, I'm going to grow from this pain, you probably will. I mean, it's not, you don't have to be a bodhisattva. You don't have to be the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree. You can actually be just, you know, just Wendy and Arthur. Now, Wendy's pretty enlightened and Arthur less so. But the point is, we're ordinary humans putting one foot in front of the other. And you basically say, pain is finding me. Pain is going to find me. I'm going to learn from it or I'm not going to learn from it. I choose to learn from it because I want to learn from it. Just that act, just that articulation will put you on the right path. That's awesome. I love the way you did that. Now you in strength, to strength, you end with four lessons to help find happiness and meaning in the second half of life. I don't want you to give away the book, but in the short time we have left, is there any way to summarize that for you? Yeah. So I, in the last actual last, last chapter, the conclusion is basically what are the seven words to remember, you know? And, and the reason I always do that is because it's interesting, you know, I, I, I'm a Catholic. I go to mass every day. It's at the center of my life. It's the most important thing in my life. And, and for, in the Christian tradition starts with the ancient Jewish 10 commandments, of course. And then Jesus was asked in the in, in part of the revelation, of the second covenant, what, what's the most important. And he said, forget everything except love the Lord, your God with all your strength and all your mind and all your, and all your soul. And, and second, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Okay. In other words, he boils it down to loving God and the expression of that being loving people. And then St. Augustine in the year 300 said, you know, even two is too much to remember. So he said that all you have to remember is love and do what you will. So I, you know, that, that, that formulation, that crystallization, that, that sort of down selecting of ideas. So what I do right. is I basically say, look, this is a 300 page book. I recommend people read it because it changed my life, quite frankly. It changed my life, the lessons in that book, um, and, and permanently. But if you, if you don't read anything else, here's basically the thing to remember. The world is selling you a bill of goods. The world is lying. It says that you will be happy if you do three things. Use people, love things, and worship yourself. That's what it tells you to do right? I mean, everything, Madison Avenue, the entertainment industry, politics, you know, you academia, you name it. Use people for your own purposes, love things, whether it's boats and cars or social media followers and prestige or whatever. And, or maybe you just love your political opinions. That's just, that's nothing more than being a, a materialist right. and then worship yourself because you can be anything that you want to be. It's all you, 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 you. Now that's wrong and it will lead to misery. And, and I say that as a social scientist and as someone who studies the neuroscience of happiness, if you want to be miserable, do those three things. If you want to be happy, you have to change the verbs and nouns, love people, use things, worship the divine. If you do those three things, those are the seven words to remember, you'll be on the right path in the first and second curve and every curve of your life. Now you, yeah, you took away my ending. That's how I was, I was going to ask. <laughs> That's what I had. And I was afraid I wasn't, I shouldn't have spilled the beans. So I'm glad you did. Um, so Arthur. It's okay. Uh, yeah. This, this was a wonderful conversation. It's it just, it was exciting to me. It was all, all the things that I thought I, I sort of imagined you saying these things when I read your book. So that was cool. And you're, you're just like how I imagine. So thank you so much for, uh, enlightening my listening audience and uh, for actually, thank you for, for being out there and doing these things. I hope people, you know, sometimes people get like 
very biased and you talk about this in in both of your books sometimes people get very biased and they might avoid a book that says love your enemies i almost right. did I, <laughs> I almost too did. hard too hard <laughs> no, although i'm although i'm not christian adverse because i still read the Christ, the desert fathers and the mystics and so forth. oh yeah this is so beautiful, I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, they, they enlighten my, my soul as much as anything else. But, you know, other people might not. And so, um, yeah. especially, and, you know, Buddhists have a tendency to think of themselves as uh, profoundly liberal. And, and I think they see a conservative background in you. And so there might be a lot of reasons why they won't get your books. So I'm telling now, get <laughs> his books. It's not what you think. It's way better. So thank I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that a lot. And, you know, the, the politics aside, look, we're we're all just trying to put one foot in front of the other. We all have different points of view. I'm deeply, deeply grateful for people who disagree with me because these are the people who help me to understand the ways that I'm wrong and, and even the ways that I'm right. And in point of fact, we are all one and the same. We're different ideological branches off the same tree of basic humanity. And if we don't love each other, all we're doing is killing ourselves. Our, all we're doing is making life miserable for ourselves, which is a, as they say in baseball, an unforced error. So let's let's go forward saying, I am going to live like Bach. Let's see what we can all do in our work, whether it's you're making your pod, podcast on Buddhism and I'm teaching my classes on happiness at Harvard. The whole point and, and the people who are listening to us are all doing different things. Let's remember that we're supposed to refresh the souls of everybody else, all for the glory of what's good and right. And absolutely, if and the world needs it more now than ever. So maybe this will inspire other people to take those steps. You know, take those steps. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Exactly right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Wendy, being on the podcast, Arthur. Thank you for the work that you're doing to bring people together and lift people up. That's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Don't forget that you can join me and others in the private donation-supported Everyday Sangha that meets virtually via Zoom every other week on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. The Sangha has just finished its study and practice of the 37 practices of bodhisattvas. And we are about to begin a new practice. I think this one's going to be a study and look into and practice of the Diamond Sutra, um, one of the Prajnaparamita Sutras. Um, We are still discussing, but I think that's where we're going to end up. So if you'd like to join the Sangha at the start of a new practice, now would be a good time. And please consider supporting the efforts of this podcast and related groups by becoming a community community member for $5 a month. If you do, you will have access to blogs, members-only podcasts, education series, a private Facebook group, and our new Introduction to Buddhism class. The first cohort on of the intro course is almost done, but look for it to start again tentatively at the beginning of June. The class is free to members of the Everyday Buddhism community and the Everyday Sangha. If you don't follow me or Everyday Buddhism on any of the social media platforms, you can go to the Everyday Buddhism website and join the membership community if you're not already a member of the community or a member of the Everyday Sangha. Go to 
www.everyday-buddhism.com and click on the tab that says join community or sangha. And you can join the sangha there or the membership community. I can't stress enough how thankful I am to those of you who donate and or join our groups. Since I do not seek podcast sponsors and do not ask for membership financial commitments to any of the groups or the podcast, my work and cost of the infrastructure needed to support what I do, plus the time I spend doing what I do, is entirely self-funded except for your donation. So thank you very much. Also, a few other notes. Another big thank you to those of you who write in with comments and questions. I do read everything, but I'm sorry I can't always respond. Um, another note, don't forget to rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. It's important to share the podcast with others and that's the only way you can do it. So if you find it helpful in your life, please do that. Share it by rating, reviewing, or of course, talking to your friends. And if you could take a minute to comment on it too, not just give it a rating or, or a thumbs up. And if you like this podcast and aren't already aware, I have written a book in the same everyday style called Everyday Buddhism, Real Life Buddhist Teachings and Practices for Real Change. Look for it on Amazon. And if you've read it, please take a minute to also rate and review. So that's all for the announcements. And that's it. Until next time. Keep finding ways to make yours and everyone's days better. Wow.